we're looking at the by far largest transformation of wealth in human history. Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. Today's leader, Yoni Asya, the fintech founder of eToro and the nonprofit The Good Dollar Project. He'll explain how digital finance can be a force for financial empowerment and can even tackle wealth gaps. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. It's really our responsibility to figure out how to reduce inequality in society so people have more access, more financial inclusion, more financial opportunities to participate in the financial world. After the 2008 financial crisis, fintech entrepreneur Yoni Asia had one thought. The monetary system is broken. To fix it, he dreamed of a system that was more transparent, one available to anyone around the world 24-7, and one that paid interest, even to those with the least amount of money. Most critically, he dreamed of a way to level playing fields. He would need to wait years for cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies to catch up with his idea. But in 2020, his startup eToro launched the Good Dollar Project, a nonprofit riff on UBI or universal basic income that gives out small amounts of digital currency, the equivalent of a few US cents a day, to anyone who wants it all to ensure anyone with a cell phone can begin to participate in the future of digital finance. The Good Dollar community is made up of supporters and claimers. Supporters stake their capital and fund the Good Dollar supply. Many supporters also donate their earned interest to further support the funding of more crypto UBI for claimers. Claimers receive crypto UBI, the good dollars, or can earn them through things like advocating for or growing the good dollar community. Crypto UBI is distributed equally into claimers' good dollar wallets daily, while it's based on the blockchain, a public transparent database. The wallets themselves leverage smart contracts, agreements between people in the form of computer code. It's been just a few years, but since launch, around 450,000 people have opened a good dollar wallet, with around 50 to 80,000 active daily claimers. While most have small amounts of money in their wallets, the equivalent of a few US dollars, that money has gone on to fulfill basic needs and enable people to connect with each other peer to peer, buying and selling goods and services, crowdfunding for community causes, and even using their crypto UBI to begin experimenting with other crypto tools. Meet the Leader caught up with Yoni where he explained why he thinks the next big wealth gap will be in crypto and how better exposure to digital finance can eliminate barriers to opportunity for the 2 billion unbanked all around the world, people locked out of credit and the global economy. He'll explain all of this and how he's grown as a leader. But first, he'll explain a little bit about how the Good Dollar Project works and how it got started. We founded eToro with the vision of opening the global markets for everyone to trade invest in a simple and transparent way in 2007. So I was a fintech entrepreneur when 2008 uh, global financial crisis happened. 
And as a fintech entrepreneur, we really saw like the systems freeze to a point as a fintech entrepreneur, that was like a very interesting and challenging moment in time where you realize you don't know whether your money in the bank is going to be your money in the bank the next day. And when you try to trade the markets, because on eToro, we trade the global markets, nothing really worked. Because I've always been passionate about capital markets and money markets and technology, it led me to realize that something is broken within the financial services system. And I started reading a lot and writing about a concept that I called the good dollar back then in 2008 about the need for a transparent money system open for everybody around the world where people can actually automatically receive interest rates if they have the least amount of money, right? So you can actually get more more money if you have less money versus the opposite, realizing that interest rates are one of the reasons, in my view at least, leading to what I consider uh, the biggest problem in today's world, which is the increase in the world inequality. And that was very early stages of my thinking around the good dollar and how can you create an economic framework that could be fair and open for everyone. So what we've built now, and we launched it in 2020, we started building the technology in 2018. It's a series of smart contracts. So it's all basically decentralized blockchain-based smart contracts or a decentralized autonomous organization that we created the ability for every person in the world to go to gooddollar.org open in a very simple way a blockchain-based wallet and then every day claim good dollars so every day you go and you claim good dollars and the same amount of good dollars are being distributed to all of the daily claimers of uh, the good dollar wallet now the way the claim works is in the smart contract there's a reserve where eToro has both donated money into the reserve as well as lent money or staked money into the reserve that reserve generates interest rates by going into third party protocols and that interest rate is translated into the amount of good dollars that can be created every day so it's really all about code that enables companies or people to donate or stake crypto money into the smart contract and that for the smart contract to distribute good dollars evenly to everyone who basically claimed every day. And then a lot needed to happen between that first germ of an idea and its actual manifestation. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in between? So, you know, 2008, trying to think of a digital currency, of a framework for a digital currency that potentially could reach hundreds of millions or billions was science fiction. And I wrote articles in my blog that sounded to most people I talked to uh, as science fiction. Luckily enough, in 2010, because of my writing, I actually discovered Bitcoin because my brother who knew that I was passionate about trying to form digital money and currency for the internet that's fair. So we started talking about Bitcoin. And back then, we actually started Editoro buying Bitcoin at $5 and $10 
realizing that Bitcoin as a technology is a mind-blowing technology that enables that exactly sort of open finance, open economic framework that could be open for everybody around the world. So my passion for internet technology and my passion for financial technology led us at eToro to adopt Bitcoin in a very early stage. But as we adopted Bitcoin and eventually launched Bitcoin for trading on the eToro platform, it was still considered by many crazies. So that was still very, very early stages for us to be able to think of, let's do something like the good dollar. We started writing about colored coins, which was sort of the initial beginning of, you know, how can you use blockchain to tokenize financial assets? We thought of how do we build a decentralized exchange to tokenize euros and dollars and gold on top of the Bitcoin network. Very proud to have been working back then with Vitalik Buterin, which was joined the colored coins protocol and later on came up with the concept of smart contracts. So because of being close also to, to the foundations of Ethereum, we were very early on to launching Ethereum on the Toro platform and very close to see the first crypto rally. So during the first crypto rally, where I think Ethereum went from $4 to $1,400 in a very short period of time, we also have seen a mass influx of customers into the Toro platform, really maturing the company because we've grown from $60 million revenues in 2016 to $390 million revenues in 2018. And during that period of time where the company's grown significantly, two things happened that led us to build the team that eventually launched a good dollar. One is eToro was already a, a grown-up startup, generating significant profits, enabled us to invest in a nonprofit initiative, sufficient amounts of money to actually build it. And at the same time, the first crypto rally and all of the ICOs, so the amount of people creating new tokens, new currencies, made it possible to talk to people about the concept of good dollar and about creating a new digital currency that just has embedded in it a better economic framework that's fairer and that is similar to universal basic income on the blockchain. Now, that, that process of building the white paper and thinking about fairness theory, reading about universal basic income research, explaining to people how the model would work and modeling it financially and economically, that, that took a while to build something that we said, okay, this could scale. Here's a code, here's a concept that could actually scale to millions of people to maybe even billions of people. So I think we had to wait both for us to be able to fund it as a nonprofit. We committed more than $5 million back in 2018 to fund the project, and now uh, we've committed even more. And also, we had to wait for the world to understand that crypto is here, digital assets are here, blockchain is real, for people to really be able to participate in this, originally we called this experiment, in, in building this movement, this community of people around the good dollar. 
I want to dig into that a little bit because I think that this idea of uh, being early and having a vision, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what it actually means for it to be uh, the types of challenges you face when something is so new, when there isn't a structure, when people aren't sort of clear on maybe how something is going to roll out? What is that like to have those conversations with people? They're not entirely sure how it will, how it will go. <laughs> what, what are those barriers like? We've established as a nonprofit, as a social sure. impact project. So at least it didn't have the, let's say, the, the stress of also having very hard KPIs and financial performance because we had to bring in people that were passionate about what we're trying to build. Can you give us some examples of the ways that the Good Dollar Project has already been transforming lives? We have examples of people paying with good dollars uh, to buy food and fruit and vegetables from food trucks. We have examples of someone who raised money in good dollar to actually pay for his tuition in Nigeria. So people gradually are finding ways to work with good dollar to do good for themselves or others. And that's really the process here is building something that distributes new digital currency, but it's up to eventually the community and us to cement value into that new digital currency. How much does it currently distribute per day? Until now, we distributed the, about $70,000 in value. And we put in about a million dollars. Itoru staked a million dollars into the contract. And then basically every day it distributes the equivalent roughly of $500. You were talking about how the community is, is really important in, in order to cement that value. How do you make sure that that value is in place and to make sure that it's strong for the community? It's for us to engage people around how to use good dollar. We're, we're calling it internally, how do you hack value? That's part of what's leading this complete rise of retail investors and the interest in cryptocurrencies in general is the, the question of what is the value of money? Right. And everybody's talking now about inflation. What is the value of fiat money? What is the value of cryptocurrencies? So the fact that people are questioning that brings basically the, the real point, which is money is whatever we do of money. It's a trust between people on what is the value of that money for the purpose of exchange. And in the good dollar, it's really up to people who buy goods and services in good dollar and sell goods and services in good dollar to cement that value into the good dollar ecosystem in addition to the framework of philanthropy or people who want to or are willing to give up interest rate in order to basically put in money without interest rate for that money to generate interest rate for the people claiming good dollars and converting it to other cryptocurrencies. Can you talk a little bit about the wealth gap and how that will play out with cryptocurrencies? So I think a lot of tech entrepreneurs today in the world understand that the wealth gap is a big problem. And while technology and obviously the view of tech entrepreneurs improves the world, it also creates more inequality to some extent. It's really our responsibility to figure out how to bridge that gap and how to reduce inequality in society so people have more access, have more financial inclusion, more financial opportunities to participate in the financial world. And I, I think a lot of people are talking about the underbanked. I think it's about almost 2 billion 
people who don't have access to traditional financial services, a lot of the digital assets community, the cryptocurrency community, view this as one of the opportunities to onboard potentially billions of people into digital assets, into blockchain technology. So sort of jumping beyond the banks. And once you create a, an ecosystem like in the good dollar, where you don't need to risk money, right? So you don't need to go and buy Bitcoin or Ethereum and actually risk money, which also means you don't need access to financial institutions because you can just go into gooddollar.org and claim every day good dollars. That means we're basically removing barriers to entry from becoming a participant in the digital financial ecosystem. And what would be the impact of that as this grows, say, in 10 years, say by you know, 2032? You know, this is a very sort of big and, and audacious project, right? So to, to that extent, we're looking at three different layers to make it sort of a bit more humble. The first stage is, is really about financial literacy. I think that we want more people around the world to understand how does digital asset work? How can I use digital assets so the, the first stage is bringing people, onboarding people into gooddollar.org enables people to experience digital money without any risk, without the need to have a bank account or buy anything. And I think that's the, the first purpose here is let's build an ecosystem that can really educate people around digital money. I, I'm a true believer both in around money and capital markets. Financial education is very important if you want to be financially independent and financially successful, almost by definition, you have to work out to be fit. So you have to learn and educate yourself about money, about capital markets, if you want to be financially independent and successful. The second pillar is financial inclusion. And, and that is really a bigger part, right? So we've built a system that is decentralized that can enable people from all around the world. And we're seeing that in, in the, our statistics, most of the users who open accounts and start claiming good dollars come from developing countries where really financial innovation is needed the most, but it's the hardest places for fintech companies coming from developed markets to actually operate in, right? So that's a very big gap that we need to innovate for developing countries uh, where actually the current financial services infrastructure is maybe not suitable for a lot of the fintech companies who can operate there. So beyond financial education and literacy, there's financial inclusion. And then the big, hairy, audacious goal here is improving financial equality. And to improve financial equality, we really need this to scale not only in the amount of people that join the good dollar, but also in the amount of people who use good dollar to buy and sell goods and services. We need a scale of people who are willing to stake digital money inside the smart contracts. Now that that scale could suddenly be, you know, Elon Musk deciding to put a billion dollars into the smart contract of the good dollar. So if our million dollars is generating $500 a day, a uh, billion dollars would generate $500,000 a day and actually even more than that. So as more people are willing to 
and I believe as this project matures, we were talking about the next 10 years, but potentially maybe even longer, as the project matures and you have more people participating, you will have also more people who are willing to stake money into the smart contract to increase their value. If you have somebody like Google or Apple saying, we're willing to accept good dollars that's equivalent to a dollar to buy our services, then that creates value as well to the good dollar. So it's really about scaling the ecosystem. And our theory and our white paper shows that just several billions of dollars, which is not a lot of money, can actually create a lot of prosperity and a lot of UBI in a decentralized way. That's the beautiful thing here. It scales algorithmically. The infrastructure is already there. So it's really about building now the community and scaling the concept of UBI on the blockchain. Are there any sort of impacts from crypto that you think people aren't talking about enough? Is there something that you think, you know, gosh, people aren't maybe really realizing the real potential here for changing lives, changing communities? If you can create universal basic income, if just a, a few of the world's wealthiest people decide to create universal basic income by just deciding to stake money into smart contracts where they can always withdraw their money. So practically no risk, just waiving interest rates. And, and, and that could generate UBI, that can generate an ecosystem where you have suddenly hundreds of millions of people claiming good dollars that have a monetary value that they can spend every day. That would bring us by definition to much higher financial equality in the world and more people participating in the digital economy. And I think that is the real opportunity of everything we're seeing in the blockchain space and crypto space is how do we build a fairer economic framework for the metaverse, for the global citizens of everywhere. What stands in the way of that, do you think? I think it's about technology. It's about technology maturing to a point. It's about people learning and, and trusting, you know, either good dollar or, or a project that eventually is inspired by the good dollar. I do think that the framework we laid does have infinite potential scale. And I do believe that there are a lot of people who have the wealth to move that needle. But I think it requires significant scale to happen. Sometimes that scale happens as a hockey stick. And sometimes it needs time for people to understand that it could happen. If, if you look at the crypto industry right now, it's actually increasing uh, inequality. It's not decreasing inequality because maybe it's also creating wealth in pockets that didn't have wealth before, but people are still looking at generating their own wealth. They're not looking at this as something that's, you know, an economic framework that's fair for everyone. But if you look at all of the top crypto entrepreneurs, they all have you know, foundations. They all are looking at how to create an open financial system, how to create more financial inclusion, even in universal basic income on the blockchain. We started this project a while back, but we're already talking to, I think, about five new projects of 
various ways of implementation of universal basic income on the blockchain. So I really think this is just the beginning of something that eventually is inevitable. So during the Ukraine crisis, crypto was used to get money quickly to people fleeing Ukraine. And that was possible because there was already a wider adoption of crypto than in many countries. But do you see the crisis helping to create a new familiarity among regular folks of crypto, something that might not have existed otherwise, something similar to how digital payments rose after pandemics in Asia? What do you think about that? A hundred percent. There is no doubt that uh, COVID-19 accelerated digital transformation. It accelerated digital transformation in many, many industries, but it also has accelerated the digital transformation of money and the digit and the adoption of digital assets in general, of cryptocurrency in general. And that came from a variety of reasons. It's not only about lockdowns. It's about the widest discussion in human history on the value of money due to the printing of money that happened. So people were asking themselves, wait, if governments can print trillions of dollars of money, why can't also people print trillions of dollars of money, which actually is what happened. The $2 trillion of crypto market cap is money printed by the people. What change in digital finance could we expect in the coming years? I think it's still very few people understand the opportunities of smart contracts. I'll just give a couple of examples. So if you think of ICOs, and again, I, I don't know how much the people listening to the podcast, how much do I need to sort of explain things around crypto, but what is ICO? What are these people constantly asking? What are these 20,000 cryptocurrencies? Why do we need 20,000 cryptocurrencies. And I tell people there's 55 million small, medium businesses in Europe and the US. Cryptocurrency is just a way for people to unite around a concept that they want to execute. They raised money for it. So it's not about creating a currency. It's just a different way of capital formation. What are DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. That's just a way for those people together to decide on the corporate governance and decision-making on how to potentially spend money. So you can raise money on the internet today to an entity that's completely based on the blockchain, that the money stays in the smart contract so nobody has access to it or can take it out alone, but they need to agree how to take money out of that basically corporate structure, right? So what I describe now is like a, a set of several smart contracts. What are NFTs? It's another set of smart contracts, right? So each of these very small subset of smart contracts or NFTs a way to create digital art potentially to create capital formation for someone from a developing country or a group in a developing country and raise funds from people from all around the world towards their art. These are just basic examples of how smart contracts work, right? And, and they're then being replicated continuously. I think the opportunity and, and the amount of innovation that we are going to see in the next 10 years around people who understand how 
blockchain works, how smart contract works, and are able to constantly create these new creations that form capital, that unite communities around capital, around potential profits, potential opportunities. I think we're really just at the infancy of that. Also from the point of view that, you know, when when I look at crypto markets and today, you know, it's a $2 trillion of, uh, of market cap of all the cryptocurrencies out there. I, I think over the next 10 or maybe it'll take longer, maybe it's 15 or 20, I think we're going to eventually see this market grow from 2 trillion to 200 trillion. We're looking at the by far largest transformation of wealth in human history, both on a technology point of view, moving from analog to digital, on a cross-border point of view, moving from local to global, and on a generational point of view, moving from older generations to crypto-native and digital asset-native generations. You got started trading at age 13. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what had caught your attention? I always say that I I fell in love in in two technologies very early on. One was the internet, connecting with people from all around the world, right? So I'm the oldest of Generation Y. We grew up in a very, very local community. You knew whoever you knew physically. And and then when the internet came in and suddenly I could speak or, or write to people from all around the world, and I realized that the world has no more boundaries because I can write something and suddenly people from all around the world can read it. I can read things that people from all around the world are writing and that the infrastructure for that technology created that global freedom of information. That sort of sparked my enthusiasm into technology. And at the same time, when I made my first trade and learned how capital markets work, and I had my father, who was a founder of a NASDAQ-listed company, so sort of had him as a mentor to explain to me how markets work. I remember when I did my first trade, and then I think I went into Yahoo Finance, and I saw the price change, and I realized I just bought something in an Israeli bank, and the stock price changed for all of the people who work in that company, who own that company. I just changed something for their lives, right? A very, very small thing. But understanding how capital markets sort of connect, again, everyone around the world into the same system, enabling a person or investor in one place to impact the value of so many people owning that share in another place. I think that really sparked my enthusiasm about capital markets and money markets. It took 27 years for us to see the same spark happening in so many people around the world, leading into some things that are beautiful and romantic, some things that are seem crazy, but you know, to the meme stock rally, to people realizing that they can save their favorite GameStop or their favorite cinema chain, AMC, a very romantic notion of retail investors participating in capital formation, right? It's all about suddenly people realizing they're a part of capital formation. Historically, capital formation was reserved for very institutionalized players, very few could feel that they're a part of capital formation, of enabling com- companies to, to raise money, to survive. And suddenly that spread 
because in crypto, that, again, it's the same. Capital formation, people raising money for a decentralized autonomous organization over the internet from people that they don't know from 200 different countries, that's another form of capital formation. And capital formation enables people to foster innovation, to build things, to create things, whether it's technology companies or whether now it's art. With NFTs, suddenly artists from Africa can create a project and raise money from 10,000 people from maybe 100 different countries and raise money for what they're doing in Africa. And that creates, again, a borderless community and a transformation of wealth. You mentioned your father, and I read that he launched a startup and that you and your brother would sort of follow the ticker quotes uh, for it in like a bank window and things like that. And that is a, sort of a really interesting thing because right from the beginning, you know, you're you're right in it. You're right into the creation of something new. You see the process firsthand and you watch it evolve. How did that shape you? I knew from a very young age that's what I want to do as well. I knew at a very young age I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I knew I wanted to build a big company. And later on, I, I knew that I wanted to build a big company in the fintech space before the term fintech was actually coined. So for me, it, it really helped guide me and, and where my passion is and eventually where my, my career became. And you started a company before you started eToro, right? You started one with your, your army buddies. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You actually sold it to Kodak when you were in your 26 or something. Uh, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about that? When I left the army, I joined a group of friends uh, and we developed uh, camera systems to be deployed on roller coasters. So uh, you could actually uh, get off the roller coaster and buy a DVD of your entire ride. Back then, it was based on very advanced technology for those days, using Wi-Fi to compress videos of cameras on a roller coaster. By the way, the only similarity between that and currently Toro is capital markets are a roller coaster, and that was a roller coaster <laughs> as well. But you know, this was me at the age of 20, 22, 23, really, jumping from park to park, from theme park to theme park, installing it, testing it in, in various parks around the world. And so you have this um, experience of watching your father uh, build a company. You have experience yourself building this company and going hands-on you know, to these parks and things. You start with eToro, and it's still very, very new. There's, there's a lot that needs to be built from the, from the ground up with, with this just as, as a sector. Was there ever that moment with eToro in the very, very beginning where you had to make a really, really important pivot? The market changes constantly yeah. and you need to adapt yourself. I think one of those pivotal points we had in eToro. So eToro today has 27 million registered users from 150 countries who can trade commission-free stock trading, cryptocurrencies and more assets. It is our understanding that we need to really build tools to help customers become successful investors. And, and, and that it has to be a part of what we do to help our customers understand the risks and the opportunities uh, in the markets and, and adjust it to what, they, what they're willing to risk and how can they become educated and become more successful over time. Originally, we thought of, you know, it's enough to just, you know, build it and they will come. But as we saw more and more people coming into the platform, we realized 
we have to build more educational tools, more social tools to enable our customers to learn from each other. Copy trading enables our customers to simply automatically copy the most successful investors on the platform. So how do you continuously evolve to not only create access to the financial services system and to capital markets, but also to help people become more successful investors? You mentioned that a key tenet of eToro is to learn by experience. How have you learned from experience? What's something that, you know, if you were going to go talk to that uh, that guy at 22 who was starting that camera company, what would you tell him? <laughs> First, talk to people about your ideas. The more people you talk to, the more information and thoughts do you gather of different opinions. And don't be afraid to talk about your idea not because somebody would steal it and not because somebody would tell you it's stupid. It's the best way to sort of form a better concept, a better company is the more information you share and therefore also receive feedback on. I think the second is, you know, think thoroughly about how you raise money, from who you raise money. Try to make sure you align with people on your long-term vision. Make sure you have a long-term vision that you're passionate about, and, and then try to make sure people that partner with you invest in that long-term vision that they're also passionate about, and not only on financials and financial return. How, how do you do that? How do you suss that out, that someone is aligned with you and you both are on the same page for where you want to be going uh, in the long term? It's, it's always a discussion. And it's, by the way, all, all, also non-trivial, right? Because, you know, investors invest across multiple concepts and ideas and industries. So, you know, you can have a board member that sits on 20 other companies. He has attention for you once a month. He, you know, you know your business, your you're always significantly down in the rabbit hole versus your partners and investors. And it's your responsibility as an entrepreneur to constantly sort of bridge that gap and remember, okay, I need to go now macro again. What are we trying to achieve long-term? We still agree on that. Are we still passionate about that? Is the market still there? And sort of that make that zoom in, zoom out for people who are, less involved, but you want to keep them engaged and involved. Are there particular questions you ask or even tells that you look for to get that sense? I mean, as you mentioned that you don't have a lot of time with these folks, but are there things that you look for to be like, no, 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 we're both here. We're, <laughs> we're both connecting. Different investors can provide sort of different value sets for, for, for the company. You don't need all the investors to be the same and agree with you on everything. You need to be able to learn from your investors and partners. I had investors that were amazing product people and were very, very product oriented and didn't necessarily like the concept of sales. I had other investors who were extremely financially oriented and just wanted to, to look at the KPIs. You, you have that high level of, of what, what, what's the vision of the company, was the mission of the company. And, and then each investor, each partner, each advisor or mentor would sort of provide his own view of the world that relates to your vision and mission. In your opinion, how have you changed as a leader throughout all of these different initiatives that you've helped kickstart? 
I grew older and had five kids, so that's a big change. And I think I learned to appreciate time or maybe even still learning to appreciate time that some things take time and you need to let people have that time to get to where you want both mentally and sort of from a work process point of view. I think uh, patience is, is something that you learn over time. Another thing is how do you harness people into a process? How do you make sure that people around you understand really where you are trying to get and, and try not to break that down into here are the things that we want to do, but here is where we want to go and, and get them to help me understand how do we get there. So, and I think that's a process also of, of sort of growing as a company. We have now almost 2,000 employees in eToro. I can no longer know what everybody does every day, but I need to make sure that all of our managers know where we want to go. Is there a book that you recommend? Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham is a very important book if you want to think about capital markets. And I can throw in a couple of more, like uh, 1984 is a very good book to understand perspective and how important it is to remember the perspective of two sides of the coin. I think Atlas Shrugged of Ayn Rand is a, is a great book uh, that helped me when I was young to sort of understand a bit of objectivism and how important it is to make sure that creators create and have that freedom uh, to create. You have five children. What do you think that they'll learn from you or what do you hope that they'll learn from you? I think the power to 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 create and innovate and, and, you know, I'm trying as much as possible to help them understand that, you know, there's no limit to creativity and the limits that people always put in place for them are, are, are just thoughts. And I think that, you know, that's my role in, in the house uh, maybe, but I think, you know, sometimes I see a lot of people um, that it takes a long time to understand sort of how, how flexible and infinite the world of thinking is. That was Yoni Asia. Thanks so much to him. And thanks so much to you for listening. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with editing by Jerry Johansson and studio production by Gareth Nolan. A transcript of this episode or any of its sister podcasts like Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast is available at wef.ch slash podcasts. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>